Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 32. We are in our 32nd sermon in the sermon series of book one of the five books of the Psalms. Psalm 32 begins immediately with a statement about the good life. The happy life. Do you know what will make you happy? Well, whatever you're doing in life to pursue happiness, that's the thing that you think is ultimate for your true north, your sense of meaning, purpose, what you value in the world, can very much be oriented around what you think will make you the most happy. Psalm 32 declares to us what a blessed life, a good life looks like. And it's probably not what most of us would expect. It includes confession of our sin and our guilt and our shame. Welcome to the good life from the Bible. That's why you're here today, I believe. You're not going to hear this kind of message anywhere else in the world. We turn to God and his word because he provides for us the true path to a blessed life. As we'll see in Psalm 32, he does not just provide us the path, he provides us the power. We all want happiness, we all want a blessed life, but we don't have it. So there's a problem, and we need to find out how we got into the mess that we're in, why we're so frustrated and upset, spinning our wheels, running on this treadmill that is life, aiming for something and never getting it, like the preacher of Ecclesiastes says. It's all vanity. I keep trying and trying and trying. I've tried money, didn't provide the happiness. I tried sex and relationships, still no happiness. I've tried power, fame, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. So friends, what's the answer? Psalm 32 does not give us everything that could be said on this topic, but it provides us a strong gut punch to our selfish ambitions. It provides us the path and the power to happiness. So let's read Psalm 32 together. Follow along as I read the psalm and realize that that's where we're headed in this message. We want a blessed life. You all want to be happy. And whether you want to do that God's way or not will be determined. But we're hopefully going to lay out that path from Psalm 32. A maskil of David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. 
Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and errant word, and I pray that he will write its truth on your hearts. Amen. The big idea of Psalm 32 in a sentence, one sentence before you get distracted, fall asleep. Here you go. Here's the message in a nutshell. The triune God provides the path and the power to solve our greatest problem. The triune God provides the path and the power to solve the world's greatest problem. Your greatest problem, my greatest problem, society's greatest problem. So let's diagnose that summary using Psalm 32. Number one, the problem. Number two, the path. Number three, the power. The triune God provides the path and the power to solve our problem. Well, what's the problem? The problem is sin. Psalm 32 acknowledges that there is sin in the world, but a threefold definition of sin is provided right away in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Two different words. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. A third word. We have here a triad, a threefold definition of the world's problem. So let's unpack these words. They're the repeated words throughout the whole Old Testament and even in the New Testament as they're translated from Hebrew into Greek to tell us of our problem. First, verse 1, blessed is the one whose pesha, transgression, is forgiven. Now let's just be honest, we probably don't really use transgression or iniquity. We might hear sin a whole lot more, but even sin, we're probably not using it in its very specific Definition. So let's define each of these words. First, pesha, the word transgression in your English Bibles is about trust being broken. Relationships between two people or two parties, they make a contract, a covenant, they make an agreement, and then one of those people breaks it. So if you're married and you make covenant promises and one of the marriage partners breaks the covenant, that's pesha. If you've created an agreement, an arrangement, a legal treaty with another nation or with an individual, a business partner, and they betrayed you behind your back, this is the word Pesha. 
And I think the image here, as we will unpack, is that there is a heavy burden being described in the language of this first verse. Heavy burden, like a giant boulder on one's back, that is the result of broken transgression, relationships being destroyed. That's the first image of sin. The problem in this world is that we are not faithful in our relationships and we break trust with God first and foremost and we break trust with one another. But that's only one piece of this pie, one third of the description in the Bible of sin and the problem of this world. Second description, whose sin is covered, hata. Hata means to fail to miss the mark. If you're an archer and you're aiming your bow and your arrow and you shoot at the target and then your elbow gets bumped and you completely miss the mark, you failed at being an archer and hitting the target. That's a failure. You didn't hit the bullseye. You didn't even hit the target. Sin is the word to fail and miss the mark. So it's attached here with covering and shame and embarrassment for our failures makes us want to hide in our sin. The first picture was a boulder crushing us by the weight of the broken trust. Second picture, hiding in the shame and embarrassment of our failures. Third picture, third word. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Avon is the Hebrew word, and this word means crooked, not straight. Something that is supposed to be straight has been bent crooked. You want straight walls in your house. You want a a nice flat level foundation. This is saying everything's all messed up and the house is weak and it's about to crumble and crush You want to get from point A to point B and you want to take a direct straight line there and instead of going there, you get lost. You go off the path. And here, the word counting is attached to it. So the picture is one of having your crookedness, your lack of straightness, having those consequences bearing the guilt or punishment of those being held to account and say, this is what the consequences are the result of your crookedness and you have to deal with them, bear the the weight of them. And look at the way our psalm highlights these pictures in David's lack of honesty and transparency. Do you see verses three and four and how these pictures provide further elaboration when he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David is telling us that there's a problem in the world. Sin, transgression, heavy burden that needs lifted, shame and embarrassment from our failures, and consequences from our crookedness that are going to be counted and held against us. And he says in that space, realizing that that's where he's at in life, he kept silent. He hid from his failures. And he experienced the consequence of those failures, which was his bones wasting away. It's a way to describe his whole life. 
My bones are wasting away. I feel sick. I feel terrible. God's consequences for our sin feel like his heavy hand. Remember the picture? The burden of sin is heavy. And so he describes the heaviness of God's hand as he lives with the consequences of his sin. Being like not having anything to eat or drink on a very hot summer day. I mean, David lived in the middle of a desert. We're in the middle of the winter of Chicago. Some days do get hot in the summer, but imagine the summer heat in the middle of the Middle Eastern desert. And he says, my strength has dried up. It's the word juice. I got no juice. I have no vitality, no water or food to sustain me. I am parched in a dry and weary land. Your, your hand, your, the heavy consequences of my sin feels like that. So I want you to see that there's a threefold problem of sin in our passage that is a great summary of the whole Old Testament and therefore Bible's definition of the world's problem. In fact, can you think of a story in the Bible where somebody sins and they break trust in a relationship, which then leads to shame and embarrassment and they want to hide those sins. And when they are confronted for the crookedness of their ways and being held to account, they blame shift. They don't want to own up to it. Can you think of any stories in the Bible that illustrate this? Oh yeah, it's the first story in the Bible. I wonder if it's not too much to say that the first story of the first humans in the Bible is them breaking trust with God as they are questioning the goodness of God in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? And the trust in God's word is being subverted by the deceit of the serpent. Trust broken relationship fractured. So they feel shame. We're told before this transgression that they were naked and unashamed. The very first thing we are told after this transgression is they understood their nakedness. They experienced utter shame. And so what did they do? I don't mean metaphorically. Literally, the story says they went and hid from God. Transgression that breaks trust leads to shame where you want to hide from your sin, covering yourself up in your shame with your own efforts to cover yourself. Add that little detail to the story because it's an important one. They sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness and their shame. And finally, God calls them to an account. He invites them. This is what we studied last week at Wednesday Bible Study. By the way, all of you are welcome to join our study in Genesis. We are studying Genesis, and it has taken us almost 50 weeks to get to chapter 3, verse 9. And we're going so slow because I'm convinced, like today's big idea, these stories are telling you about the whole world. They are not just telling you about one little moment that happened in human history. This is the definitive definition and explanation of the problem of the universal cosmic scope of, of everything. So when I say the triune God provides the path and the power to solve our greatest problem, our, meaning the whole world, I'm taking that 
on the basis of Genesis chapter 3. Transgression of trust. Hiding from shame and embarrassment. And third and finally, Adam gets confronted. Where are you, God? Where are you, Adam? Not because God didn't know where Adam was. Because he was drawing and inviting Adam out from his hiding place. Asking him to confess what's going on. And he blame shifts. He does not want to take responsibility for his actions. So this is the human condition. This is the problem of the universe. A heavy burden, a hiding of shame and failure, and an unwillingness to be honest and own up to the crookedness of your ways. This is the bad news part of the sermon. You're allowed to say amen if you know it's true of you. And in fact, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're going to pray a prayer of confession. And when you say amen, I hope, after that, and I'd love it if all of you did it out loud, for those of you that believe, amen to that prayer of confession led by Pastor Phil, because I admit that is me. I do the same thing as Adam and Eve did in the garden. I do it every day to some degree or another. I don't trust God's word. I choose my own path. I think I'm better than God. By doing so, I expose my foolishness and my nakedness, and I then try and cover it up. I lie. I run away. I try and not let people see. I don't even want God to see. I don't really truly confess the whole sin, even when I do. And then when I need to own up to my responsibility, I make excuses. That's the problem. So, second, Psalm 32 gives us a path. What's the path? Three steps. Well, if there's a three, threefold definition, we, we, we literally got three steps. Three steps back. First, confess. Do you see verse five? I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. That's the exact opposite of the problem, isn't it? I made you know The word acknowledge that's translated here is the Hebrew word yada, which means to know experientially. And he is telling God, I am making you know my sin. I did it by confessing my transgression to the Lord, and then you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Right now we're looking at the path. If you have found yourself unhappy with life and not experiencing the blessing that there could be in this world, could it be that you have not confessed and made known your failures to the Lord and instead tried to hide and cover up the consequences of your crooked ways and not own up to the responsibility that you should take for breaking your trust with God? Confess. Secondly, the first step is to confess. The second step is about when you should confess. Verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. At a time when you may be found. Offer this prayer. Confess your sin soon, quickly. Confess before it's too late, I think, I think is the easiest way to say it. Offer a prayer before today no longer exists, and it's just too late for you to make things right with God. So if the first step is to confess, the second step is to do it now, soon. 
This is why later in the Psalms we're going to say, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Come to him. Don't be stubborn and rebellious. Come. He, he is so gracious to come to you and pursue you. We spent like 30 minutes almost talking about that point in Wednesday night Bible study. In Genesis, when God knows they sin, and he's not clueless about where they are and what happened, he comes and confronts, and he does not immediately banish, strike them down with a lightning bolt. Adam and Eve are drawn out so that they can be made right with God, but instead they keep trying to hide by blame shifting. How many times has God come toward you and then you continue to stiff arm him? When you sense that he's even now or in a church gathering or in a conversation with somebody where you know you should be more honest or transparent about what has happened, but you just continue to keep it stuffed down. Oh, I pray that today many of you will wake up to the foolishness of this practice. Whether you need a medical psychologist doctor to tell you that bottling things up and in will literally destroy you and make you waste away. Oh, apparently that's 3,000 year old from Psalm 32. You want to know biblical psychology? And I mean this in the most charitable way. What does the Bible have to say about the inner self, the inner person? Confess and do it quickly. Keep short accounts or you will waste away. It's a warning. Third, confession leads to repentance. Don't just confess. Oh, it just felt good to get that off my chest. Back to my same old kind of life. That's missing the whole point, isn't it? We confess the sin to acknowledge that we are sinners so that we can make our relationship with God right and then we don't want to treat God that way anymore. We want to establish trust again. We want to trust his word. So notice the way the rest of our psalm, verses 8 and following, says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. The sorrows of the wicked are many, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Do you get the idea from verses 8 to 11 that confession leads to a re-established relationship with God, which then means we trust God's word above our own, and therefore we walk in the ways that God has laid out in his word. That's called repentance. Too many times people just want to confess their sins so they can get this transaction with God to be like, all right, well, that's forgiven. And then now I'm not going to do anything different. You will live a miserable life. You will not fulfill the blessing and happiness that's described in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man who the Lord does not count their iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. The call here is to align our heart and our ways with God's heart and his ways. That's what verse 11 means. Uprightness. If we've been crooked, then the solution is not just to confess, well, we're all sinners, so there's no hope to actually become a different kind of person. We're just going to stay crooked. That's, that's the opposite of the gospel. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is about straightening out crooked people through forgiveness of sins. Not just, well, you can confess your sins and then God will send you to hell. Do you see how that's anti-gospel? If the point is a relationship with God, to restore that relationship means, and now I love this God that's forgiven me so graciously, I want to obey him, and his ways are better than my ways. I'm going to humble myself, and I'm not going to be like the mule or the horse. The stubborn mule or horse. It has to be coerced. No, back this way, back this way. That's what I mean. Confession, before it's too late, with repentance. Those are your three steps back to the Lord. The problem is sin. It's threefold. The way back has three steps. So before we move on to the power, this is really the juice that we need. Where's the juice and the vitality from God's word in Psalm 32? I want to give you the juice before you leave. It's it's Jesus. You are, many knew that, but before we get to that point, I think we should think about some very practical things about how we live our lives and the way we think about confession of sin. Here's just some random thoughts that I had throughout this point about the way back. I believe the health of Embassy Church and the health of this community will be largely dependent upon not how often we sin, but how we deal with our sin when it happens. A healthy church responds to sin faithfully and biblically and humbly. Church leaders might sin, but will they repent from that sin? Will we keep them accountable or just allow them to keep being crooked? If you start seeing crookedness in your pastor, will you be like, but Pastor Phil, I just like him so much. I just really like how he teaches. Well, we, we can't hold him accountable for adultery. That would be, let's just cover that up. Anybody feel like that story is a little old in the church today? That true repentance means accountability from the top down for all the members of the church and a healthy church isn't one that doesn't sin. I'm not declaring to you that I will never sin and never be disqualified. I pray that I don't. I'm not aiming to. This is not a confession sermon where we say, guys, I need to step down. Praise the Lord. I believe by God's grace I have sinned, but not in a way that's disqualified me. And I pray that that will continue for decades. But when the day comes that you hear something that is not above reproach, Hold church leaders accountable. Healthy churches will erode instantly when their church leaders can get away with sin. But look how many people come to faith in Jesus, the church members might say. There are no excuses for this. We deal with the Lord the way the word says. Psalm 32 tells us, confess, do it quickly, deal with it with repentance. And if there's not repentance, then someone must be removed, whether they're a member or a leader. In addition to that, imagine the health of a church community when they confess their sins to one another as a practice that brings healing to their bodies. This is from James chapter 5. You can read this later on today at the end of James chapter 5. We are commanded as Christians to confess our sins not just to God, but to one another. I told you this way of being happy is not the way you normally hear. What are churches often filled with? People that come in and assume everybody else has got it together. They all look so perfect and good and nice. I want nothing to do with that kind of church. I want a church that's full of people that are really well aware of their sin. 
can confess that sin and repent of that sin and do it in community. But we will not do this if we're afraid. We will run from God and we will run from each other and we will keep hiding in our sin when we are afraid of the consequences. Psalm 32 says that there is blessing in this practice. There is healing of your bones that are wasting away. And many of you are living in an unbelieving kind of mindset that says, I don't believe there's blessing. I think it's better for me to just hide this. It never works out. So I suggest that we should not only confess sins to one another, but the power of forgiveness is displayed most powerfully when we forgive each other, when we confess sins against each other. I could confess a sin that I did privately, Say, Kenny, I need to share with you a confession. I was short in my tone in a very unloving kind of way with my children. This is true. It's now true, true confession time. I have done that. I have spoken in a way that I don't believe is loving. And I confess that I sin in these ways and I want to repent. Okay, that's between me and Kenny and he's helping me with that. But then I could actually hurt Kenny And then I should go and confess my sin to him, and he should forgive me. Imagine a community of people that do that. No matter what the sin is. 70 times 7 even. And I think we need some basic building blocks to be able to do this. Blame shifting is not confession of sin and forgiveness. I'm so sorry that I did that to you, Kenny, but I only did it because you first did it to me. Well, that'll undercut the power of, of forgiveness. Confession gets chopped at the knees and ripped out from underneath when you start blame shifting in your confession. We don't make excuses. Kenny, I'm sorry that I said that to you. I think that was unloving, but I was really tired, you know? How many times do you add a blame shift or an excuse to your confession? How many times do we change the focus Well, let's stop looking at me. Kenny, I'm really sorry that I wronged you in this way. But you know, I've been noticing some things about you. Can we talk about your sin for a minute? We're so afraid of being exposed. We have this natural impulse internally to put up guards and protection because we're afraid that if we really looked at our sin honestly, that what would happen afterwards dealing with those consequences, we wouldn't be able to bear it. So we blame shift, we make excuses, we change the focus from us to someone else. Or worst of all, we just say we're sorry for the consequences. I'm really sorry. Okay, you feel bad about it. I'm really sorry. I don't think I did anything wrong, but I'm sorry. That's not a confession of sin. It's just a empathetic comment, I'm sorry. And I don't want to be overly, like, particular, but do you realize the difference between these two? Have you ever had somebody just say, yeah, I'm really sorry about that. Well, what are you sorry about? Are you sorry that you sinned, that you broke trust? What if you said, Kenny, I was wrong. I confess that the manner in which I spoke to you was not becoming of an elder or a Christian. I acknowledge my guilt, and I agree with God's word that I have sinned against you in what I have said, what I have done, and I pray that you would forgive me. 
Are you starting to see that the blessed life in Psalm 32 is a little different? Are you afraid what will happen if you were to start to live this way? Or are you starting to realize that the emotional health of this church and your personal life is going to be largely dependent on your ability to receive God's forgiveness through confession of sin, to give it when you forgive other people? So let's talk about the juice, the power. The reason why I believe we feel so afraid and want to hide is because we can't bear the weight of our sin. It's not just that we're not good enough or strong enough. You, you can't. It will crush you. It is a heavy burden that must be lifted and you cannot carry it yourself. It is the kind of consequences that when they play themselves out, you can't rectify the crookedness and the consequences are too much to bear. And that's why we need the big idea, God. The triune God providing for us not only the path, but the power to solve our greatest problem, this threefold definition of sin, heavy burden lifted, an ability to come out from behind our hiding and be honest about our failures, and how to deal with the consequences of our crookedness. Praise be to God that Psalm 32 exists because it gives us all of this. Look first at verse 1. Guys, this is good news. I hope you're excited. This is going to be the best part of the sermon, as you might imagine. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Do you know what the word forgiven is? NASA. I mean, you don't pronounce it that way, but just to remember it easy, this Hebrew word is NASA. So what does NASA build? Rockets. It'll be easy for you to remember this Hebrew word. Forgiven means to lift the burden. So literally, blessed is the one whose transgression that was that massive boulder that you could not bear the weight of. Well, God lifts the boulder like a rocket ship and takes it off to heaven himself. Now, do we have any evidence that this is actually true in all of Scripture? That God lifts the burden? Well, the word NASA is used in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Surely, he has NASA. He has lifted our griefs and carried our sorrows. Because he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've been crooked in our iniquity. We've turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him that punishment, iniquity, avon. Study Isaiah 53 and see that Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross lifts the burden, bears the weight and the penalty of the consequences of our sin, and makes us right with God, bringing us peace with him and the rest of the world. But we're only just getting started to the first problem, even though we've dipped into the other two. 
Forgiveness, the power of forgiveness, is the lifting of one's burden. Second, covering. Blessed is the one, this is verse 1 of Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin, whose failures are covered up. Do you all remember the way the story in Genesis chapter 3, how it goes next? God makes them accountable for their consequences of sin. And then, before sending them out of the garden, he does what? He covers them. He clothes their nakedness with leathery skins instead of the pathetic fig leaf attempt of self-atonement and covering. I think that's gospel from page three of the Bible. You and I, in our foolishness, run and hide from God because of our failures, and therefore we try and cover ourselves up. How many times have you failed miserably, not just initially, but then trying to cover it up? Been caught in a web of lies or deceit? Blessed is the one who has no deceit in their mouth, and they're willing and able to say, this is everything about me. Every deepest and darkest secret, I know that when I come and bring it before God, Psalm 32.5 says, he forgives. Do it now because he will forgive now. Immediately, there is forgiveness. So Psalm 32 is written by who? A Psalm of David. Not only is I think Genesis in the background, but I think David's adultery with Bathsheba his murder of Bathsheba's husband, and his ability to use that murder as a cover-up of his sin, and then him living with the consequences of the new baby that was born out of wedlock, and then Nathan the prophet wants to confront him for the consequences, and he doesn't quite get it right away. It's like the Garden of Eden is being played all over again with David's sin. And when he gets confronted in that sin, he then confesses before God, and then the very next verse in the story is, and God forgave David. This is why most biblical scholars believe that before David died, he penned Psalm 32, looking back at that treacherous moment of sin, transgression of trust with God, the burden of his consequences being dealt with. So, Notice the way our psalm says that it is a blessed thing to have your sins, your failures, covered up. Wouldn't you love to have your sins covered up and they really be covered? Not halfway covered, fully covered. As if you could see them no more. Well, interestingly enough, this word hidden or covered is used again in our psalm. Notice that the way it says that God becomes the hiding place Verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Your problem with sin is God. So don't go running from God. Go run to him and he will be your hiding place. I hope you understand the difference between the two. God can be your hiding place. Instead of running from him, running to him, he will rescue you from trouble. The wrath that is coming against sinners is like the mighty waters of the flood. I think that's the point of the reference. 
You preserve me from trouble. The waters, in verse 6, they shall not reach him. The flood waters of God's torrent judgment against sinners will not reach the one who is hidden in God. So, Colossians 3, 1 through 3 tells us that we, by faith, are raised with Jesus Christ. If we seek the things that are above, Christ at the right hand of God, so set your mind on those things above, not on earthly things. And when we do this, we have died with Christ, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus Christ is the power that hides us from the wrath of God, shelters us from the thunderous waters of God's flood that will wash us out. They won't reach you if you're hidden in the ark, the ark that is Jesus. And this, I believe, ties all together when you get baptized. As a little footnote, think about the meaning of baptism and being hidden with Christ. Third and finally, we see that sin is a heavy burden, one that we cannot bear, but Jesus, like NASA, shoots a rocket of our burden off our back and sets us free. No wonder that's a blessed thing to have the burden lifted or forgiven is the translation. Second, our sins make us want to cover and hide and not be truly vulnerable or honest and therefore we become superficial, shallow people and the world perpetuates in this dehumanizing behavior and coping mechanism. But instead, we could be hidden in God, in Christ, fully be honest about who we are and confident people that walk around this earth not feeling afraid of our failures being exposed. What a glorious way that would be to live. That would be a blessed life. Third and finally, the consequences of our crookedness being counted against us have been credited to Jesus Christ on the cross. He paid for all of them. The debt is wiped off, but he does more than that. He deposits into your account funds. He credits to you his righteousness, his uprightness. So, Psalm 32 is used in Romans chapter 4, and both passages are using banking terms. Terms that would be used to describe somebody that has a debt. Your sins are a massive debt, and you cannot pay it. Do any of you have the, enough money to pay off America's debt? Think of that kind of amount of money. Could you? Could we collectively? Like, what if we pulled all of our money together? Would we be able to pay off the American debt just through Embassy Church? It's foolishness. That's the kind of cosmic debt that has been piled up with sins against God. And Jesus Christ on the cross bears the weight of that sin, lifting it through his forgiveness of sin, hides our shame by him being naked, and then pays for the penalty, bearing the consequences of those sins, and making it possible through the Holy Spirit for you not just to be wiped clean, and then you be zero, right? If you pay off all your debts and then your bank account says zero, well, then you still don't have any money. You know what you need? Money in account. Righteousness in your spiritual bank account. And that's precisely what we just heard read from Romans 4. As David says in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are not counted. In other words, all three words that define the problem of sin are solved in the cross of Christ as he dies on the cross, naked, covering our shame. 
So here's my last little image for you. If Adam and Eve in the garden went and hid in the midst of the trees, I suggest you and I hide behind another tree. The tree that is the cursed tree, the tree of death. There's some Bible scholars that believe that when Adam and Eve hid, it doesn't say specifically, but because it uses the phrase in the midst of, it's the middle tree. They hid behind the tree of life and were banished from that tree forever and ever until Jesus Christ climbed up carrying his own cross, the mountain of Calvary, and died for our sins to forgive us of our sins so that you and I could hide behind that tree, his tree of death. I pray that you will receive this as power to walk the path of the blessed life. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do now come in the name of your son Jesus, and we pray that your spirit will guide us to repentance. And so, in that spirit, we confess we are sinners. We have not trusted your word. We have proudly and boldly thought that our ways are better than your ways. Father, we feel sorry a lot of times about the consequences of our sins, but not the sins themselves. So we want to confess that many times when we're trying to even attempt the practice of Psalm 32 and confession of sin, we do that miserably too. We don't even acknowledge that it's first and foremost a sin against you, a breaking of trust and harming our relationship between God and humans. And so I, I pray that we would have our eyes opened to the ways in which we have not trusted you. And that we would feel the nakedness, the shame, the guilt, the consequences that we are so deserving of for our sin. And I pray that we would run to the cross quickly. God, forgive us. We confess that many times we take a long time. You run after us when we go and hide, and it takes us so long to climb out from behind those fig leaves. God, we do confess so many times we try and fix things, take matters into our own hands instead of coming to you humbly and in deep, deep gratitude for your cross. I pray that this church be filled with your spirit and mature and experience the blessing of these qualities in Jesus' name. Amen.